You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, in captivity, home shelter and all. Actually, I have to say, in terms of the captivity part, uh, it doesn't feel a whole lot different to me personally because I work from home. And so, uh, you know, it's uh, actually it's a little like having a little bit more company here. Uh, it's uh, the kids around. The school's obviously shut down. Uh, my poor wife, who's very extroverted, is very um, it seems a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more affected. But uh, since I'm a, a little bit of an introvert, uh, actually, by nature, uh, I it's not too different for me, actually. Anyway, I have to admit, though, that this um, whole coronavirus thing, uh, you know, it, it, it has really hit me by surprise. Uh, I didn't think this corona that this whole COVID-19 thing was going to hit us this hard, right? Um, and to be clear, I'm not just talking about how deadly this pandemic has been in terms of human life, which has been uh, pretty dramatic. And for anybody who's still calling it fake, I don't exactly know what to tell you. I mean, there's more deaths uh, by all causes combined uh, now in New York. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's a little strange to hear people still calling it fake. Um, but you know, the funny thing is a month ago, if you told me that just about every small business, including, you know, a couple of mine, frankly, in America would be shut down, uh, in just 30 days, I, I'd really probably not believe you. I think you might be a little bit crazy. You know, I guess I had become accustomed to, hearing stories about these sort of scary diseases like the Chinese SARS epidemic in 2002 and, um, and Ebola, right, in Africa. Uh, and, and when I hear, heard about those things, uh, you know, they always, they sounded scary, of course. I mean, Ebola sounds downright freaky, right? Um, but they always sound distant, like, you know, there's someone else's problem. And so I guess that's the big difference this time, right? This virus is really smart, didn't kill everybody in its way, and therefore found its found its way across the ocean. So anyway, there is uh, an old saying that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. And situations like this um, really allow you to assess uh, what you've been doing right, what you've been doing wrong, what you could do better, Um there are also going to be some opportunities to buy things at a discount. We've already, you know, talked about some uh, some things, uh, certainly in the oil and gas category, um, that might make sense because, in particular, that uh, particular area has been just hammered. Um, you know, you could be pretty reflective right now, like a lot of people. You could be looking at your portfolio, thinking that maybe you maybe you shouldn't have been so heavy on equities. Maybe you should have had some more liquidity. Maybe you should have been looking more at like a wealth formula banking type account rather than stocking up on your Ameritrade portfolio. You might be looking at the operators with whom you invested thinking, boy, I'm glad I entrusted my money with those guys rather than the other guys. And hopefully that, that goes for those of you who are in investor club. On the other hand, uh, when the tide goes out, of course, uh, you will find that many operators uh, were actually swimming naked, even though they were uh, talking a big game. And in those situations, uh, the truth 
will simply declare itself and there'll be opportunities for others. And that's not saying that, you know, good, good operators and, and people who are honest are not going to get hurt here. They are. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, this, this whole thing, it ain't going to be pretty. Um, but once in a while, you do need a Darwinian event like this to shake things up and come out uh, better, stronger on the other side. You know, take the current situation if you can, and I'm certainly trying to do the same thing. Uh, make yourself stronger, make yourself more resilient for the next crisis, whether it's a systemic crisis or even if it's a personal crisis. And know that uh, know that you're actually making some um, you know some changes that are going to help you in the future because this won't be the last crisis. There's going to be lots of them uh, in in your lifetime. Still, there's going to be, you know, financial crises. The world is increasingly um, small, or I should say decreasing in size in the sense that there is a, you know, uh, there's a disease uh, on one side of the world. I mean, seriously, it's like a little kid peeing in one side of the pool and not being, you know, you thinking that you're you're immune to that kid peeing on the other side of the pool because you're on the other side of the pool. Well, guess what? The world is just like one pool now, right? And so this is going to happen again. Um, you know, hopefully it won't happen too too soon. Uh, you know, but I, I wouldn't expect it to be another hundred years like the Spanish flu. So just start taking these things into consideration. We also, we've talked about the 2030s and the upcoming demographic crunch that that's likely to ensue there. What are you doing? What are you thinking about, you know, to, to try to get yourself in a good position for that if, if that indeed happens? And if it doesn't happen, you know, the fact that you potentially prepared for something where, you know, people who are very uh, sound mind uh, um, and not... Uh, um, you know, economists who are always uh, calling for, for the, the world to end are actually saying that there could be a problem. If there isn't a problem, uh, you'll be fine too, right? So it doesn't hurt to prepare for some of these things and understand that, you know, it's best to prepare for those types of things when times are good. Uh, although obviously right now times are not that great. So you're kind of unfortunately stress testing everything, uh, personal and financial right now. Anyway, along that lines, I know a lot of people have some time on their hands. Uh, I know for me, uh, you know, I've got some child care duties helping out uh, with that as much as I can uh, to decompress uh, my wife and and uh, between that, trying to pop out some of these podcasts, right? Uh, but also take some time out there to think about what your own exposures are. You know, asset protection is part of the equation when it comes to exposures, you know, things that you need to uh, to be concerned about. Uh, and that's what the, the interview this week is about. It's about asset protection specifically as it relates to real estate. And it was done with Doug Laudmel. And actually it was really before this whole pandemic thing was clear, uh, that it was going to be, you know, hitting us so hard and that things were going to close down. Um, however, you know, given that actually the contents of this interview are incredibly relevant to what's going on today. I mean, think about the business owners who are becoming insolvent as we speak. I mean, how I mean, it's just crazy to me, right? I mean, I've got a couple of small businesses I mentioned we're applying for some of these loans and it is an absolute you know, a something show, right? I won't say the family unfriendly words here, but it is an absolute terrible show 
um, of how this thing is all playing out in terms of money getting to businesses so far. We'll see how that goes. Um, lots of these businesses are going to go in, you know, are going to be insolvent. Business owners are going to have credit issues. Um, they're going to be facing, and you know what? Any real estate that those business owners own, uh, they're going to look like red meat to all those loans gone bad and the creditors who hold that uh, hold that paper. And it's not just the business owners, right? I mean, it's going to be anybody who's got debt uh, that they're unable to pay right now. I know guys who are worth millions of dollars who've got like no cash in their pocket right now who could get in trouble. Um, anyway, this is what asset protection, uh, you know, is in part is designed to help you with. And again, of course, it's better to get this type of protection in place ahead of a crisis, but sometimes it it takes a good scare like the one we're actually in uh, to put a plan in place. And so I would encourage you to do so if you've not done so. Anyway, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Doug Lodmel. Again, Doug is my personal asset protection attorney. He's the best in the business. Great guy. And he's going to tell you all about how to protect your real estate, whether it's, you know, your own house uh, to, you know, limited partnership investments when we come back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest, uh, he is no stranger to the show. He's my asset protection attorney. He's my friend. He is Doug Lodmel uh, of Lodmel and Lodmel. And uh, he is the guy I trust when it comes to asset protection. And also the guy really who, uh, you know, helps me get an overall sense of structure along with, you know, my, my tax team with Tom Wheelwright. Uh, he helps guide and work with my estate planning uh, all around, it's good to have a guy like Doug. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks, Buck. Happy to be here. So, Doug, um, I wanted to have this show because you actually um, you actually wrote a paper which I thought was incredibly useful um, because a lot of the same kinds of questions happen all the time uh, in the real estate space, which is namely, you know, how do I protect my assets? And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bits and pieces of information out there. Um, but what you've done is you've created essentially like a white paper, which we are uh, sending to all of our subscribers and also will be able to be downloaded But I, um, from, from wealthformula.com. But I want to walk through it. So first thing I got to ask you is, uh, you know, when I read your paper, one of the things you say is real estate is one of the most difficult assets to protect. So, so why is that? Yeah, it, it's um, it's difficult because it's physical. It it can't be moved. So if you have a piece of real estate, it's in the jurisdiction of a, a judge. And if you have a case in that jurisdiction, um, there's not much you can do with the physical piece of real estate. It doesn't mean it's not protectable. In fact, it's very protectable. It's just more difficult when it comes to cash, securities, liquid assets. Um, we can move those. We can physically, even gold bullion and cryptocurrency, all that can be physically taken to a place that a judge can't actually reach it where real estate can't. And for that reason, you have to take different steps and use different strategies to protect real estate. Got it. So, Let's go over these concepts. And again, they are in the paper. People can uh, read this when they get their hands on it. But you go over yep. some key concepts. Um, and the first concept is related to a saying, uh, gross is vanity, net is sanity, and cash is king. Tell us what that means in terms of asset protection. 
Yeah. So um, I, I learned this in, a, in, in the strategic planning that I do for my own businesses. Um, and one of our leaders said, gross is, san- gross is vanity, net is sanity, cash is king. Um, and what that means in the context of both business and in real estate is you know, your gross income, if you, you're at a party and you want to seem like a big guy, you say, yeah, I gross $100 million a year. Yeah, you're yeah. Right. Right. Um, with a wow, 1% um, no margin, right? <laughs> right. Big guy. Um, <laughs> right. that is sanity. Like, okay, well, how much do you net out of that? Oh, yeah. well, you no, know, 4%. So $4 right. million a year. Okay. Yeah. Still not okay. terrible, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but cash is king and cash is there. What's your cash flow? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm negative. I'm, I'm bleeding money, you know? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. now we have a different issue. Um, when it comes to real estate, the same thing applies. Gross is the vanity. So, um, I use in the paper an example of a client who has a $25 million portfolio. That's a really nice, healthy number. That's good. Mm-hmm. So when he's at parties, he says, yeah, I've got $25 million of real estate. Great. Um, net is his sanity. That's the amount after the mortgages. So in his case, he's got $20 million of mortgages. Mm-hmm. So he's got a $5 million net. Still not bad, right? right. Still got right. $5 million of net real estate. But his cash flow is negative. And cash is king. So if that was a $5 million portfolio with a positive cash flow and he was making $500,000 a year of positive cash flow after he serviced his debt, well, then he'd be sitting pretty. Right. But in his case, he's actually negative. He's negative over a million dollars a year because it's a, it's a, it's a particular land play that he's making that is not fully covered. It's called Got a it. covered land play, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there is some rental income, but not enough to cover the $20 million of debt. So, he's bleeding cash, having to come up with it from other sources in order to hold on to this portfolio. His, his goal is, is that it's going to be worth $75 million. So he's willing to, to feed it that extra million dollars a year mm-hmm. because he thinks it's going to explode. It. And that's calculated risk on his part. From an asset protection standpoint, that guy is, is, is already not a super attractive target because his yeah. net is only 5 million mm-hmm. and his cash flow is negative. So anybody coming in, one, they'd have to take care of the banks before they ever gotten in, in a position where they could take his real estate. Because the best they could do as a judgment creditor is get a second lien behind the, 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 the banks. Mm-hmm. In his case, the banks are all class, cross-collateralized. There's no, you know, it'd be very difficult for a judgment creditor to come in and feel like they're ever going to get a penny out of that thing. Add to that negative cash flow, and I'm pretty sure that a judgment creditor wouldn't even bother getting a lien on it because it's, it's, it's not going to be worth anything. So in the context of asset protection, what I care about is the net. So when clients call me and they say, yeah, I've got, you know, $6 million worth of real estate. Okay. Say how much in mortgages? 4 million. Great. 2 million net. That's what I care about. We're protecting 2 million. We're not protecting 6 million. Um, the more you have in mortgages, the less you have in equity, the more asset protected you already right. are. Right. So it, 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 it makes your cash flow more difficult, but it makes your asset protection easier. Um, so that's just a concept and we're going to build on it, but it's important to know that that net is what we're really counting on. That's what we're looking at when we're protecting real estate. So just, just uh, we've talked about it fundamentally is, you know, debt in the, in the form of mortgages and liens is probably the most solid asset protection you can have. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Just as an aside, what is your take on with your personal residence? You know, there's a lot of reasons in my view, um, not necessarily to try to pay down your, your personal home. Yeah. But from an asset protection standpoint, I would think 
that's the last thing you'd want to do. Yeah. yeah. So um, it it is a little bit of a, you know, double-edged sword here. Everybody wants their home paid for. Everybody's wife wants a paid for home. It feels good. You're you're like, Hey, I, you know, at least that's always taken care of. Um, Unless you live in Texas or Florida or one of the States with an unlimited homestead exemption, in which case paying off your home is a great idea. Mm -hmm. But if you live in California, um, with very minimal homestead exemption. And, you, and, and in California, you know, it doesn't take much to have a $2 million home. I mean, a three right. bedroom home is right. $2 it's, million. It's, dollars. Yeah, it's um, like a garage, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the garage is that. Right. So it's, it, it, it'd be better if you said, Hey, purely from asset protection, don't pay it off. Right. Leave it, leave it fully mortgaged. Not only that, I mean, just as an aside, you do get the, the, the tax, you know, write off for the home mortgage to the extent that you can. Yeah. So that's, that's positive for you. Um, so we just have to decide which is right. more important, paying off the home or having it mortgage. Um, we can protect the home without paying it off by using the bridge trust, which I know we're going to talk about in a little yep. bit. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that is good from an asset protection standpoint. So let's talk about, let's go back to these concepts in the paper. You talk yeah. about inside versus outside liability in real estate. What's the difference? What are you referring to there? Yeah, this is an important concept and one that most people don't really um, understand because no one's ever explained it. There's two types of liability that I'm worried about. Inside liability, which is liability that the property itself creates. So it's inside. So if we create an LLC or something to hold a piece of property and that property has a mold issue, that is inside. So it doesn't matter how many layers of protection we have around a piece of property. If the liability occurs inside, then whatever's inside that, that bubble is at risk. Outside liability is liability that occurs from anything else, but the common element is the ownership. So you own a piece of real estate, Buck, let's say you own a, a multifamily apartment complex, and then you have a liability unrelated from another direction, from a car accident that exceeds your life in, or your auto insurance. Mm. Now that judgment creditor is looking from the outside in at your real estate and saying, can I get to it? So it's important because inside liability determines how many entities we need to use. So I'll give you an example. I had a guy from California call me. He had three $1 million properties. He had them all in a a single member LLC, one LLC. And he had a mold issue on one of the properties. The mold issue was a $5 million claim. His insurance was a million. So he had a $4 million excess judgment issue outstanding. Because all three properties were in one LLC, all three properties were at risk. So that judgment holder could go into that LLC and catch all three of his properties, Mm -hmm. even though only one of them had the mold issue. That was because it's inside liability and he mixed all those properties together. If he had had three separate LLCs, then that judgment creditor could have gotten into the one with the mold, but the other two would be excluded because they're not in the same bubble. So you can think of it as like a safe at your house. Yep. If you, whatever's in that one safe, if the, if the burglar cracks the one safe, they get everything. If you have a lot, maybe you want to have more than one safe in your house and they get into one, you still have the other two. So that's the difference between inside and outside. Inside liability means we need more than one LLC for various properties. Outside liability is different. Outside liability, it doesn't really matter how many LLCs we have because the liability is coming from the outside. So back to our mold guy, if he has all $3 million properties in one LLC and his issue wasn't inside, it was outside, 
a judgment coming from a partnership issue and he got a judgment creditor, that LLC would protect equally whether it's one or three. Yeah. So outside liability, really you just need minimal number of LLCs. Inside liability, we break it up and we usually look at the value. You know, a million dollars is is definitely enough to start a second LLC. I'm usually even about half that. A million dollars of property value or a million dollars in equity, you think? See, that's a perfect question. Yeah. Back to concept number one, right. a million dollars a net protectable. So I don't, he might have a $25 million property, but if it's got $24 million of debt on it, it's just a million dollar property to me yeah. from an asset protection standpoint. So it's net that we care about, not gross. Right. Right. And, and, um, one of the things that, sorry, from the, uh, from the standpoint of outside liability, even, um, again, just taking a slight digression there, there is a, a difference in terms of the types of protection you can get from the different states uh, that these LLCs, um, you know, like in California, for example, California LLC is pretty much worthless, isn't it? I mean, compared to say like uh, Arizona or Wyoming is, uh, can you talk about the levels of protection in terms of different states? Yeah. Yeah. So this is another confusing area because um, you hear about Wyoming and Nevada and Delaware and, and Arizona and, and Alaska. And you, you hear about these states that are really good about protecting their LLCs. And some of those states have privacy. And so people say, oh, well, it's better to do that. Well, it comes down to an issue of what are you holding? So if it's California real estate that you're holding and you do a Wyoming LLC because somebody on the internet told you it was better, and then you go and you bring it into California and you hold a key piece of California real estate, you have converted your Wyoming LLC in effect to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California. Not only are you going to pay the franchise tax, but if you ever have a liability issue, the judge in California is going to apply which law? California law. Right. Not Wyoming law. Judge in California doesn't care that your LLC is a Wyoming registered LLC. What they care is that it's doing business in California. So for assets that are real estate, I recommend using the state that the real estate is located because you're not buying anything by using another state. You're just doubling your maintenance costs. Now you have to maintain this, the, the, the LLC in two states. Um, alternatively, what you do do is you use one of those good jurisdiction as your holding company. Right. Okay. And that, that brings us to the next concept, which is layering. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, yeah, let's talk about that because that sort of feeds right into that. So, okay. so layering is, is the next, next level of protection. Yeah. So what layering is, is taking protection. And so I, I, I spent a lot of time in Colorado. Um, I have a mountain home up here. And when I first got here, um, they said, okay, dress in layers. And they, they literally have a system. There's a base layer. It's made out of merino wool. You, you put it on against your skin. It's the perfect thing. And then you want the mid layer, which is usually a little thicker. It can be a synthetic or it can also be the wool. And then you want an outer shell, which is waterproof. Mm -hmm. The reason you want that is, it, is you're much warmer with all three of those layers, but you're also much more flexible. If it gets hot, you're skiing, you can take the outer layer off or you can take the inner layer off or the middle layer, you can adjust um, and you're definitely warmer and more flexible. The same thing applies with protection, asset protection. So the base layer is your LLC holding your, your real estate. That's your base layer. Your mid layer 
is your holding company. And in the mid layer, we do want to use one of those states that has really good protection around the LLCs and the LPs. So Arizona, Nevada, Wyoming, um, it could be even Utah in some cases, Delaware, Alaska. We want to use one of the states that is has, has stood up and said, hey, we're serious about protecting these. We're going to make it a multi-member entity. Whereas the base layer, it's okay to make it a single member entity. The reason you'd want to do that is that single member entities get disregarded for tax purposes, but they also can get disregarded for asset protection purposes. So we want it disregarded for tax purposes because, you know, when a client comes to me with 15 pieces of real estate and we need 15 LLCs, what he doesn't want is 15 tax returns. That's what he doesn't want. And so if we make them a single member, which is usually how they come to me. They all, they're all single member. Um, and if the, if the individual is the member, now we have a problem from an asset protection standpoint because a court is, has a tendency to disregard those single member LLCs. As you said, in California, a single member LLC held by an individual is about worthless. Yeah. However, if we have that single member LLC held by a multi-member partnership in Arizona, as an example, now we have layered the protection. We've solved the single member piercing of the corporate bail issue. And now we've also got that jurisdictional benefit of being in one of the good states. And so that's the first two layers. There's a, um, there's a lot of really important things that you kind of spread in there that I think are of value too, just to emphasize the, um, that there is that the, beyond the fact that there is just this, uh, additional layer the uh, concept of the single member LLC versus the um, multiple member LLC. That's a really important one um, because I see people with uh, creating LLCs all the time and they're just single member LLCs. And uh, what I understand that you're saying at this point uh, right now is that in, in many cases, and I'm sure it depends on the state, uh, the court often looks at these as disregarded. And so, if you're going to do an LLC, it's probably a good idea to have, um, you know, some kind of partnership between, I don't know, maybe you and your wife and you and your kids, um, yeah. you know. Well, and, and, you and know. at the holding company level, it's much better yeah. because if you do it at the LLC level, now you've improved your asset protection situation, but you remember you like that disregarded entity status from a tax standpoint. So unless you want to end up with those 15 tax returns, the right. best structure is to use the multi-member at the, at the mid layer, the, the single member at the base layer. And then this works best if you then use the outer shell, which is the bridge trust. So uh, now let's talk about the outer shell. Um, and this, and we we have uh, talked about the bridge trust before, but I, I want you to kind of talk about this in the context of you know what it is and how is it different from some of the outer, some of the other, um, you know, options that are higher level um, asset protection, like you know, a foreign asset protection trust and domestic asset protection trust. Yeah. So. Um, uh, everything that's out there that's legitimate. I'm not talking about the illegitimate trust. And I know we're going to do a webinar uh, talking about some of the problem trusts out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a whole nother webinar, but I'm talking about of the legitimate options, which would be the domestic asset protection trust, the foreign asset protection trust, um, and the bridge trust of those. And, and there are some other ones that are also legitimate that, you know, are non-grantor and do some other things. Of all of them, they all have their place. 
there's not one that's just automatically always better. Um, and that's kind of the problem is that a lot of people are, are out there saying this is always better. You know, foreign asset protection trust is always better. Here's why. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the issue is they all have their pros and their cons. They all have a, a cost associated with them. Um, and if we start with the foreign asset protection trust, I, I'm a huge fan. I mean, I have lots of experience actually using foreign asset protection trusts to protect client assets and it's worked so well. I mean, I, it has proven to me over the past 22 years of doing this that it is a, it is a rock solid tool. The challenge with it is that it's expensive. It comes with a loss of control. It has a lot of compliance issues. It comes with foreign bank accounts that a lot of domestic clients are unfamiliar with. Those are more expensive than regular E-Trade accounts. So you have this whole extra layer. And what I see is a lot of promoters out there just saying, hey, this is best. Everybody should have this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not true. It, 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 some people should have that, but it's not best for everybody. So in my own client base, Better than 98% of the clients will never and have not ever needed to trigger their bridge trust, and, which means it's less than 2% of the clients that would really need the foreign asset protection trust. And so, yes, in the right moment, it's the best tool. It's the best tactical tool. It's not the best strategic tool because the best strategic tool leaves you with the most options. And unfortunately, when you go straight to the offshore trust, you have limited your options. You have narrowed them down. You've made your choice. Now you have this offshore trustee. You need to get the assets offshore. Um, you change some of the taxation issues, which Tom Wilwright and I talk about pretty regularly with you know some of the investment. Because once it's a foreign trust, it, it comes into a little bit different tax regime, um, even though it's still a grantor trust. So you have some considerations. So yes, it's the best tool in the right circumstance. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, Let's talk about the other popular tool, which is the domestic asset protection trust. These are done in, um, it was 17, now 16 U.S. states have some type of domestic asset protection trust legislation or authority that allows for them. It's the same concept, which is a self-settled spendthrift trust, a trust that you can be the beneficiary of, which also protects assets from creditors. The difference is, is that it's domestic. So with the foreign asset protection trust and the reason they're so good is that in the foreign jurisdictions like the Cook Islands, the statute actually says that the Cook Islands is statutorily prohibited from recognizing a judgment from any other jurisdiction in the world, including the United States. That's really good if you're protecting. Well, if you do an Alaska asset protection trust, or a Nevada domestic asset protection trust, they cannot say that. They cannot statutorily say that. In fact, Alaska tried to do that, tried to say all issues related to the trust must be adjudicated in Alaska, and it was struck down. That was recent. Um, And so we have Article 4, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, which says the states must grant full faith and credit to the other states' laws and judicial proceedings. So that means a judgment from California is valid in Nevada. It's valid in Alaska. And so when they come and domesticate it, now we have a whole other set of challenges. Whereas in the Cook Islands, they would just tell you to get out of, out of court. In Alaska, they can't. Um, not to mention the federal courts, the bankruptcy, federal bankruptcy courts, the federal district courts, those all supersede state law. So if you look at all those and you look at the history of the domestic asset protection trusts that have been litigated, um, it's not nearly as rosy as with the foreign trusts. Those domestic trusts, um, that were litigated. Did that happen pretty recently? Because we've even in the last couple of years have had, you know, fairly well-known people, you know, 
talk about that as an option. That may not yeah. be as good, but I, I'm kind of curious, you know, because from what you're telling me, it sounds like it doesn't sound like a very good idea at all. Well, okay. So yeah, they have been litigated and, and recently, um, like I said, the most recent one was a case out of Montana where it was a real estate issue and they tried to use an Alaska protection trust and it just all fell apart. And the courts all sided with, with the Montana court, with the underlying judgment and the Alaska trust failed. So um, when push comes to shove, I'm not a huge fan of domestic asset protection trusts. It doesn't mean they don't have their place. If you're a resident of Nevada, it's a totally different issue than if you're a California resident trying to do a Nevada asset protection trust. So if you're a resident of Nevada and you have the right facts and circumstances that make it to where you, what you want to protect from is actually something that the Nevada asset protection trust is good at, well, then I think it's a realistic option for you. Um, I think what's happened, Buck, is that the foreign trust is kind of unpalatable to most people. It's too expensive. It, it comes with too many hurdles of comfort to get over that you want to use it, that a lot of attorneys have just kind of um, taken the domestic asset protection trust as, hey, it's better than nothing. And I will say it's better than nothing. Um, and probably they're not going to need to use it. So it's, it's statistically, we're not going to have a lot of failures. I'm probably not going to be one of those cases. And, and they're saying, hey, this is a lot easier to do. Let's just do this. Um, and I would agree in many cases. I would agree more though, if there wasn't a better option. And so when I looked at this whole landscape, and this was before there really was a domestic asset protection trust statute. When I looked at all this, I asked the question, well, wait a second how can we keep my clients in the domestic world for simplicity and yet put them in the offshore world once the time comes? Um, and the answer was the bridge trust. So what the bridge trust is, is it is a foreign asset protection trust. So the trust is actually registered offshore. It has a foreign trustee listed in the trust documents that signs when the trust is created and accepts the role of special successor trustee, which means that in the future, if they're called upon, then they will serve as the full trustee and that trust can be a fully foreign trust. But in the interim, when we don't have a life-threatening crisis, we bring the trust, we bridge it back into the United States and under 7701A30E of the Internal Revenue Code, there's a two-part test which determines whether a trust is domestic or foreign. We meet the two-part test. It's called the court test and the control test. So we make sure that a court in the U.S. has primary supervision over the bridge trust and that a person in the U.S. has primary control. That person is the client as the trustee. So the client gets to serve as their own trustee. And that stays that way unless we have a crisis. If we have a crisis, we pull the trigger, we cross the bridge, we, we call upon the offshore trustee, and the offshore trustee then takes steps to make it move the assets offshore, remove the client as a trustee, and do everything necessary to make it a fully foreign trust. The reason this works is that the trust itself is registered offshore already and is recognized in the Cook Islands, not from the moment we crossed the bridge, but from the moment it was originally registered. And so we have, at that point, a 10-year-old offshore trust. Um, and that's extremely powerful, but we cut out all the maintenance and the IRS compliance in the meantime. So- so this is, I mean, it's fascinating to me. It's a, dom so basically it's a domestic, it's, it's a foreign trust that's been domesticated back into the U S is that right? For tax purposes. For tax, for tax purposes. purposes. Yeah. 
the process, tell me about the process to going from the bridge uh, to fully, I mean, have you had to do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. In 22 years I've had to do it a lot. Yeah, and so oh, yeah. what does that look like? What does it look so, like? What happens is the client calls me and uh -huh. he says, we got to trigger the trust. we yeah. got to cross the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And my first thing is say, okay, well, tell me what's going on. And I will tell you, Buck, nine out of 10 times, my advice is we don't need to cross the bridge. Just stay steady, relax. It's not as bad as you think. Because remember, I see this every day. Um, it's just like if you're, uh, you know, if, if you're a real estate investor and you flip homes for a living and you yeah. flipped a hundred homes, you walk into a home and what you see is a lot different than someone who's never tore down a wall and ripped out a kitchen and, and put in a new floor. You see it and you know exactly what it's going to take to get the job done. Yeah. They see it and go, this is a disaster. Right. I'm not going to buy this home. Right. But when Same you, thing. So, so I, and I totally get that because, you know, uh, when I first started out in business, you know, getting any letter from a lawyer or anything like that, literally, I mean, it literally got. I terrified, like right? I terrified, and I'd have this yeah. adrenaline going through my body, and it would ruin my day. And and yeah. it's gotten to the point where you know, as you know, my, my my business stuff is fairly robust, and it's almost impossible not to have some kind of a letter come your way. And at this point, <laughs> I you know, I just send it to somebody else. I sometimes don't even open it. I just open right. it. I just send it to <laughs> the attorney. So, right. but that being said, when it happens, I'm curious on the mechanical level how quickly yeah. and how nimble that 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 um that process of de-domestication and making the bridge into a foreign trust happens at that point okay so in the 10 percent of the cases when they call and i say i agree with them okay yeah let's mm -hmm. let's cross this bridge the process is twofold one is declaring an event of duress. So the protector, and I'm normally the protector for my clients, would draft a, literally a document which says declaration of event of duress. That goes to the client to sign and acknowledge. They're not approving it. They're not the ones writing it. They're just acknowledging that they understand the protector's making this declaration. The protector signs it. It goes to the offshore special successor trustee who's already got the trust and says, here's what's going on. Here's the situation as protector. I am discretionarily declaring an event of duress that causes that offshore trustee to become a full trustee. The minute that happens, they're the trustee in conjunction with the client. Now they are going to take steps. So that happens very fast. That's going to happen within a couple of days. As soon as I write the letter, get it signed by the client, email to the trustee, the trust is now technically triggered. The next step is, okay, now we got to figure out what does that look like from an asset protection? Do we need to move the assets? Well, I can tell you if we're triggering the trust, we need to move the assets. There's no point in triggering the trust mm -hmm. and not moving the assets. And this is where a lot of people get fouled up. They, 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 even people who start with foreign trusts, they, 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 the ones who sell, hey, foreign trust is best, start here. Oftentimes, they just connect it to domestic entities and they have all the assets here. So they're actually in the exact same position as someone who's just triggered their bridge trust. Now the offshore trustee has to say, okay, what are the assets? Okay, there's $2 million in a brokerage account. Okay, what are we going to do with that? Well, the trustee needs to open a new account. Where are they going to open that account? In a safe jurisdiction. That's going to be Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, yeah. could even be Australia. Um, any jurisdiction where there's not a comedy of, 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 uh, of 
recognizing and judgments from another jurisdiction. Um, I say Australia because I, I recently had a client ask me to do a paper on it. I did all the research. Australia is actually very good. They do not recognize foreign judgments and it's very hard to get one recognized there. So if you happen to have a bank in Australia that you're comfortable with, that would be okay. Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and Luxembourg also are good. So that process is going to take time. That's not going to happen in a week. So triggering the trust is going to happen quick. So now we have a foreign trust, just like if we had started well, one. What about real estate? Because that because now yeah. we had this process where we had <clears throat> we had this um, uh, you know this comp this this holding company um, that was owned by the Bridge Trust. But that holding company was presumably holding, you know, entities in, in different states vis-a-vis uh, -vis different LLCs, different state LLCs. So how, uh, what is the process? I mean, is what happens in that case for that stuff to be owned by, by the trust? So this is really the key part of the whole thing. This yeah. is where the rubber meets the road. And it doesn't matter if it's a foreign trust from day one or a domestic trust or a bridge trust. Doesn't matter. With the same issue, the exact same issue, which is what do we do with the net equity, back mm -hmm. to concept number one, with the net value of that real estate? We've got to get it out of there. So you can get it out of there one of two ways. You can strip it out through loans. That's way number one. So you can use conventional loans if you still have access to the conventional loan market. You can use private money you can use hard money. Um, you can use any kind of money you want, but you have to use a real loan. So I, some other people out there on the internet are saying, oh, you create your own Wyoming company. Nobody knows who owns it. And you record a mortgage against all your property. That's a phony loan. It doesn't hold up when um, put under scrutiny whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and it usually ends up creating more damage than good because the courts now think that you're a shady kind of guy that is creating fake right. loans. Um, to hide your own real estate. So I'm not a fan of the fake loans with the Nevada or Wyoming companies. You have to get real loans. That's way number one. That's a job. And there's no way around that job. And it doesn't matter if you started off short trust from day one, you still have the exact same job. How do you pull the equity out of this real estate? You need to have time. You need to start as, as soon as it becomes apparent that this is going to be critical. Critical. Do you need to pull 100% of the equity out? No. Because that whatever you leave, you know, 10, 15, even 20% of the equity, it's not super attractive because the costs of selling it, the costs of taking care of all the previous mortgage holders, um, uh, all of those things are, are, there's some costs in that will eat up some of the value, the net value. Sure. But I'd like to see 80% or if possible, 90% of the equity out. The, the, the stripping of the equity is possible always. I'm going to just going to tell you that it's possible. The question is how much is it going to cost you? So there's always a hard money lender that is out there willing to give you 80% sure. of the value of the property, right? So let me ask you this though, in, in terms of where, where, what is the additional value that the, that, that the foreign component gave you then if really the, you're, you're just stripping out all the equity. With well, you've got to have some place to put the equity. I that's see. where the, that's where it goes. And, all right, right, understood. Right. So if you strip the equity out and you put it in your bank, well, now you haven't done anything. You've actually made it easier for the creditor, yeah. right? Because you strip all the equity out. Let's say you have five million dollars equity. You strip it all yes. out. You do all this work. You go through all these hoops. Now you got five million dollars sitting in Charles Schwab. The creditor comes and goes. Oh, thanks. I was going to have to do a lot of work to get to that equity. You just yeah. did it for me. Yeah. So the foreign component, you have to have a place for that equity to sit. That is 
just the safest place. And that's where you still need that foreign bank account. You still need a place to put all that equity. So that's option number one. Option number two is sell the property. So if you're looking at a catastrophic loss, then you just have liquidate, then you just liquidate and that money moves up. Liquidate everything. Liquidate everything. Now I will tell you, um, I thought, honestly, I, I understood this well, even when I first started practicing, I'm like, well, okay, real estate is tough. I thought I was going to go through a lot more challenges with real estate than it turns out I have. In, in, it's surprisingly, the LLC in, with the holding company, with the trust on top of it, in and of itself has dissuaded 95% of the creditors from even bothering. And we haven't had to strip equity or sell real estate nearly as often as I had presumed we would when, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just turned out that it's, it's actually pretty effective without stripping the equity. In 20 years, how many times have you had to do it? Um, I've had to do it. God, it's a handful buck. I mean, I, I mean, I had to do it a couple of times with offshore lenders and, and, you know, at, at fairly high cost and, you know, but these were huge cases with multiple banks going after the client. Um, I've had, I've, I've asked clients to go out and get loans when they still could just to be prepared. Um, and I've done that multiple times. I don't think in any of those circumstances that we, actually needed to send that particular money offshore. Um, but I would say it's just a handful. It, it's surprising how well it worked without actually going to that final stripping the equity selling the property. Um, but you, I always tell clients, you got to be prepared for that because if I tell you, oh, it's going to work without it and you're the case where it doesn't, well, you know, yeah. now, now we have a problem. I always, it's sometimes I, I've said in the past that I think one of the, one of the major purposes of asset protection is really making yourself look like the most unattractive person to go after in the whole world, right? Is just turning yourself into a complete prune and, um, and making yourself effectively into a massive pain in the ass for any creditor. Yeah, that's like a- that, that's that's accurate, and that's <laughs> that's one of the arguments that the domestic asset protection trust only people use. Right, is that hey, just it's already going to be such a pain in the ass. So you're like you know, yeah, this is maybe not be as good, but it's still going to do the job ninety percent. And if that's their argument, I'm okay with that argument. Um, I still think it's why wouldn't you want to have the bridge yeah. offshore? I mean, so- why why wouldn't you? But but I'm okay if that if you as long as the client is aware of that. What what, what bothers me is when the client's not told that when they're when they're misled into thinking that somehow it's 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 as good as sliced bread and it's not quite you still have to slice that what are the if any what are the um uh, critiques of the bridge versus you know just doing a straight up fapped i mean is there are there you know people out there who say you know i don't think it's a good idea to a bridge and you know what are their arguments if they do that yeah. Yeah. There are people out there. They, they're almost exclusively people that sell one of the other two things. Um, I haven't found anybody that, that unbiasedly has said it. In fact, all the unbiased people I talk to are other attorneys and their, their comment is overwhelmingly, Oh my God, this is great. This is what I want to represent. Um, so, and uh, if it's work, I know you should just add to that too. You just said something that I think is critically important. You've, it's been tested. It's not like this thing is You've not, you know, they, it's a theoretical thing. You've, you've used it multiple times in the last two decades. So, I mean, oh yeah, no, up, upwards of a hundred times. I mean, I have, I have, we have used it a lot. And remember, once we cross the bridge, 
we're not a bridge trust anymore. Right. We're a FAPT. Yeah. We're a foreign asset protection trust. And it's backdated. And it's backdated. So and that it's, and it's not dated a, as of the original uh, re- registration date. And so yeah. there's not a fraudulent conveyance issue because of that. Correct. Right? Okay. Right. Right. So, but the criticism is, oh, well, you won't have time to trigger the bridge. Um, that could, that has only proven to be true if guys with three letter yellow initials and windbreakers come into your office. That is the only time that's proven to be true. And I tell clients, hey, if there's a chance that three-letter governmental agencies and windbreakers and SWAT teams are coming into your office, grabbing your computers, and threatening you with jail, um, Bridge Trust is not the tool we want to use for you. Or if it is, just know I'm, I'm, it's not going to work. We will not have time. If they slap a temporary restraining order on that kind of client, then the Bridge Trust is done. We're not, we're not going to trigger it. But let me tell you, that's actually been a benefit. I, I have had clients in that exact situation. Um, and I've told them, look, if that happens, this is not working. There's no asset protection feature whatsoever to it if, if that's what happens. And that has happened. And the client has called me and the net result was actually in the favor of the client. Because we didn't have it, they were able to stay out of jail. Um, it simplified their case. The criminal attorney that I spoke to was absolutely overjoyed that it wasn't offshore because he said, if this was offshore, this guy was going to prison. Um, so how is, th- why, there are, why would that have been? Why, why, why would that have been? Well, because once you, once you go offshore, you have a different set of, one, your optics change. Mm. Um, the optics of offshore is not good in general. It's considered a little bit fishy. Um, it doesn't play well with a judge or a jury to say, uh, well, he's got all, you know, all these millions of dollars sitting in this foreign trust. It plays poorly. Um, and that's, that's a consideration. Now, sometimes we're okay with that. Sometimes we're okay if it plays poorly. If it's a normal lawsuit where there's not a criminal component and not a governmental agency involved, I don't really care if the judge doesn't like the looks of it. If we protect the assets, we're going to yeah. get this thing settled or, or dismissed. If it's so governmental, if you're a criminal, the bridge might not be a best idea. If you're a criminal, this is not. I, don't call me if you're a criminal, and I, I won't. I don't want to do the bridge trust or the forge. I don't want to do anything for it. But if you're just in an industry that's targeted, and I do have clients that are in industries that are targeted, they're just they're not illegal, but they're not liked. Um, then we are very we look very closely at this entire situation, and usually for those people, we just go with the foreign asset protection trust, um, or we go with the bridge, knowing that the bridge. That, that, that in that case, the bridge is not going to help. Um, but I will tell you, having the option in 99.9% of the cases where we're not talking about the government coming into your office in windbreakers, um, the bridge is giving you the flexibility to make those choices. Let me ask you one more question here about, you know, many of uh, people in our group, because we have this uh, uh, investor group, our accredited investor group. Yeah. Um, primarily passive investors uh, through limited partnerships. And so, but you know, they, you know, some of these people are millions of dollars uh, of, of, uh, of interest as, right. as limited partners. Um, you know, so say they have something coming externally. Uh, what are some of the suggestions for these kinds of people who are invested primarily as limited partners? Because in this scenario, Say, for example, you have all your interests in, um, you know, from that limited partnership um, or from that holding company that's that's owned by a bridge or a FAPT or whatever. In that scenario, you may not have uh, you may not uh, have the ability to sell 
those securities because you don't control them. Right. So you can't liquidate them. And, right. and then I don't know how, I don't know, maybe you could still get some sort of loan against them. I don't know. Maybe you could sell them. I don't know. But can you, can you address that kind of an issue? Because that, that probably affects, you know, a lot of people in, in, in our group. Sure. So, so um, I'll just give you a quick history of Lodmel and Lodmel. Yeah. Um, my, the other Lodmel is my father, Gary Lodmel. Mm-hmm. He became an asset protection attorney because before he was an asset protection attorney, he was a real estate syndicator in Arizona mm-hmm. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So Arizona in the 80s, early 80s, um, they would go out and do raw land. And um, he owned swaths of Chandler and places now that are completely developed. He saw it. He was the guy that literally knock on the farmer's door and say, hey, you know, uh, would you be interested in selling this land? And the farmer said, what's the price? So buy by the acre and then ultimately sell by the foot. Um, the returns are big, but you have a long waiting period in there. In 86, if you remember, Reagan came in and he changed mm-hmm. the tax code and he got rid of the depreciation benefits of being in Proactive. a, a yeah. A, a limited partnership. And it, it threw the whole industry into complete chaos. I mean, it was just chaos. And so what happened is a lot of his clients had serious financial troubles and their creditors started coming to him as the general partner of these syndications and saying, I want this guy's limited partnership interest. And what he was able to say to them is, sorry, he doesn't have any right to it. He has no right to, to, to demand that because he's a limited partner. So you can get a charge against that interest. That's what Arizona law provides for, but you can't get the interest and you don't get to become a partner. And so who's my father friendly to? The, the investors that have been with him for years or the creditors? Right. He's friendly to the investor. So he didn't, he, first of all, this was raw land. It had a long time frame anyway. Um, it, it, it just, uh, you know, there, there was no, uh, horizon where the creditor thought this was going to be a quick payout. He watched every single one of his clients settle with those creditors for pennies on the dollar. He was so impressed with that happening that he actually started going, well, what if we did this for real? What if we actually did this on purpose for the purpose of asset protection? He traveled down to Belize, who had just enacted a statute mirroring the Cook Island statute, and he started researching. That's how he became an asset protection attorney because the limited partnership interests were so good at protecting client assets, (laughs) even without the foreign component. So I say all that to come back to your question, what about all the investors where they have limited partnership interests? Well, first of all, those interests are already pretty well protected because they don't have any right to demand that money. The general partner has that right. And the general partner is, is, is definitely friendly to them. Right. So um, not saying it's a guarantee that there's not going to be a distribution. If the partnership dissolves, the real estate sells, and there's got to be a distribution, well, it's got to be a distribution. However, if the member of that partnership is the holding company owned by the bridge trust, guess who that distribution goes to? It goes to the holding company, which in turn goes to the bridge trust. So that's a much better place to have that distribution pointed at than the individual investor. So my recommendation to all those people is, is that yes, you want to get your name off of that limited partnership just in case you do get a creditor and they are willing to wait until that partnership distributes, have it into your asset protection structure. So in that now case, the- just to, just to review kind of what you said, the, because you're in a bridge, well, that's not, that eventually may become liquid, but by that time you've already pulled the trigger and you're foreign. And so when that, uh, you know, whatever partnership that you had, if you get some sort of divestment liquidity event, 
that's going to go to the foreign account. So you're, you're, up, you know, you're in good shape. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if, if we're in that kind of situation, we're going to go ahead and trigger the bridge. Yep. It's holding the, the partnership is going to notify the, 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 the investment partnership. Um, please make any distributions to the bridge and the bridge is going to send wire instructions saying, hey, make them here in Switzerland. So yep. when it finally does distribute, um, it's going to go there. Now right. the creditor here can try to pierce the veil and do all sorts of things, but now we've just made it massively more difficult. Um, and again, a, a huge chunk of the asset protection. You said it earlier, Buck. It's about making yourself so difficult, so unattractive that you can put the table back to, if not level, tilted in your favor so that you can get this thing settled. I mean, if you have a real debt, settle it. You know, um, the number one way to, to solve a debt problem is to pay the debt. That's the best way to solve a debt problem. Now, you don't have to pay it for full value. You can pay it for 10 cents of value. Um, yeah. Asset protection is designed to enable you to get that debt settled. Right. It's not, it can tell, it can be used to tell the other guy to pound sand, but that's only about 10% of the time. The rest of the time, we're using it to settle the debt. Right, right. Great. Well, um, this has been, I have to say, I think I feel like I understand it even a lot better than I did before. Um, Doug, uh, the, the paper we've already sent out, um, uh, well, certainly by the time this has gone out, we're going to send it out. We're going to put it on wealthformula.com as real estate asset protection um, download if you want that. But also tell us how, because there, there are plenty of people who need some help here. By the way, a lot of people think they don't. <clears throat> I'm talking to doctors all the time and they're like, I got yeah. insurance. I don't right. need this. I mean, they won't listen, but maybe you can address that and then tell, tell what people where they can get a hold of you. Well, um, okay. So I'll address that. <laughs> There's three things that I, I think comprise someone's need for asset protection, the level of assets they have. So the more assets you have, the more you should probably be considered protecting them. The level of risk that you have in your life. So the more risk, the more things you do that create and cause risk, the more you should probably be protecting. And then number three is the most important, your personal level of risk tolerance. Um, and that's the one that really matters. So I've got clients with, with just a tiny amount of money that have spent a, you know, a significant portion of it to protect that tiny amount of money because their risk tolerance is virtually zero. They, they can handle no risk. They, they have to keep this money. I have other clients with obscene amounts of money that are so risk tolerant that they don't really see asset protection as a need because they they can handle almost any kind of risk. So um, what I would encourage you to do is not be uh, uh, just an ostrich sticking your head in your sand saying, it'll never happen to me. That's unrealistic. Um, it may never happen to you, but if it does, it's much better to say, hey, I can handle the risk. So you, determining whether you need this or not, um, my advice is talk to me or talk to someone like me that you can go over it with. Um, and, and I'm happy to talk with any of your clients. Um, the best way to reach me is just email me, doug at laudmel.com. My last name is Laudmel, and that's also my website, which is www.lodmell.com. There's a ton of information on my website. It's, it's really lots of videos, very robust. You can get all these questions. Um, or you can call and just schedule an appointment. Um, you can call the 800 number, 800-231-7112. Just say you heard me on Buck's show and you want to schedule an appointment. There's no cost if you're coming from Buck's show. I, and we'll sit down. We'll, we'll, it'll take about 
30 or 45 minutes on the phone. And we'll just go through it all. If, if it makes sense for you to have any kind of tools or if, or, or if there's some benefit, I'll tell you what it is. And if not, I'll say, well, you know what? You're good. You, you have a home in Texas and you got a, a 401k plan. You don't need any additional asset protection if that's the only two assets you have. Sometimes just knowing what you have that's protected and what's not um, is a huge relief. So uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I should also point out that Doug did a <clears throat> full asset protection webinar for us uh, sometime last year. And, um, and that is also on wealthformula.com. And that's also a ni- nice way to reach out to Doug if you want, because I just forward all those, any, anybody who downloads that, um, uh, over to, over to Doug. Doug, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for being on, uh, wealthformula.com. And it's always a pleasure. My pleasure, Buck. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. A um, couple things I want to remind you of. Uh, first of all, you can get that the paper that uh, Doug mentions in this interview. Uh, I sent it out as an attachment to those who are on the email list, so you might get it from there. But you can also get it by uh, downloading at wealthformula.com. You, there's a webinar there that Doug did on asset protection in general. It's a, a broader uh, uh, asset protection um, webinar that you ought to watch anyway. And in addition to that there, you can also get um, this paper that Doug talks about. Definitely worth your time uh, to look into. Um, It would have been nice to have our uh, event uh, later on in in April this month to have Doug come out there and and talk about this in person, but it's nice to get it anyway. um, I also want to remind you, there's a couple other things. uh, You know, if you have not joined Investor Club, uh, you know, there we're talking about a lot of distressed stuff right now. Uh, we're getting into situations where uh, we might have some bargain buys, and then you know we we've already talked about some, uh, and uh, I I really do anticipate in the next couple of months that we're going to have some distressed assets. So if you're an accredited investor and uh, you're interested in participating in that kind of um, thing, definitely go to wealthformula.com and join Investor Club. It's for an accredited investors only. Uh, Finally, you know, a lot of people are finding a lot of benefit from our, you know, Wealth Formula Network. Uh, It is a, you know, this whole thing started um, as a course, right? So we have this course and you sign up for it. uh, And it's got a lot of smart people on there like Tom Wilwright, Ken McElroy, um, you know, anyway, just a, a bunch of really smart people talking about personal finance and, um, and then it's followed up with a, uh, we have a Facebook group, a private portal, and then we have these bi-weekly mastermind calls. That's what we call wealth formula network. People are in that. So anyway, people are finding great solace in that right now. It's been really good talking about what's happening day by day or, you know, not day by day, but you know, couple weeks by couple weeks and trying to track this uh, crisis, trying to, you know, put together everybody's information into one place and, um, and try to make sense of it all on the personal finance side as well. We also have a bunch of doctors in there. So we invariably talk about where this uh, COVID thing is going. So anyway, uh, if you're interested in that, I would highly recommend it, especially if you've got some downside where you can go through a financial course and start participating in things, uh, go to wealthformularoadmap.com and you can sign up uh, for that there. That's it for me uh, this week on Wealth Formula. 
podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.